Hello and welcome to the world's premier Star Wars novels podcast, Thronderdome. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Dottie, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, my uh, my co-cosmonaut throughout the galaxy that George Lucas created and Timothy Zahn perspected, Ronnie Gardaki. Ronnie, how are you feeling tonight? Das Vidanya. <laughs> I think that is that goodbye. All right. Well, we'll this is the we're ending the show. Goodbye, everybody. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, we're uh, we're still getting our sea legs. I actually just got back in from work, uh, so I'm uh, wearing a nice pair of uh, charcoal slacks. I have a uh, a shirt with some uh, vertical black stripes with it. Uh, Oxford shirt, of course, button up. Uh, sleeves rolled up because you know I know how to get down to business. So I'm I'm hoping to bring this uh, kind of professional energy this 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 aura of professionalism to the proceedings this evening because we are continuing in our recap of book two in the thrawn trilogy dark force rising and in fact uh with this one we're breaking yeah we're more than a third of the way through we're, we're a good way through this book which i honestly wouldn't have guessed from kind of where we are plot wise <laughs> but that's really can, disappointing. <laughs> we can delve a little deeper into that as we discuss these goings on, and there's a few doozies in this one, man. I, I think we'll have uh, a good bit to talk about. But I guess just to to, to get there, we'll we'll begin the recap uh, as usual. Uh, so we begin chapter ten with uh, Kabarak, the uh, the Nogri commando uh, is landing his ship with Leia and Chewie and C three PO in it onto the uh, the a patch of ground next to his old village. Uh, nearby, there's a cluster of huts with uh, brightly lit windows shining in the night. And in the center of the cluster is a large cylindrical building with a wide cone roof. And I have a note here. I just wrote description exclamation point, <laughs> which was kind of nice that it didn't say there was some sort of alien architecture we actually got shapes to rotate in our heads about it um but they uh they land Car- uh, uh assures leia and Chewie that the residents of the villager will honor his pledge as if it were their own and he heads off to announce the arrival of the outsiders to the clan chief because that's the way it's done you know and c3po gets the spacism kicked off by noting that the customs and rituals of this sort are very common among the more socially primitive pre-spaceflight cultures. And then Leia hotly reminds him, uh, you know, reminds him that uh, Alderaan had a royal hierarchy too. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, Alderaan Alderaan was a stupid society too. (laughs) Exactly. Um... Yeah, yeah, it was, it's, so there was a, uh... They're so great, how come they got blown up? It was an, it was an interesting back and forth here. So it says, like, um, uh, so she, yeah, she says, well, we had, you know, court etiquette and high record on Alderaan. Most other people in the galaxy didn't consider us to be socially primitive. Uh, no, of course not, 3PO said, sounding a little embarrassed. I didn't mean to imply any such thing. And then uh, Leia says, you know, I know, assured him, a little embarrassed of herself at jumping on 3PO like that. And my, like, typical liberal, right, walking back, that she, she, she had groped and found the correct critical line on the New Republic's uh, Imperial Corps chauvinism toward the periphery, 
And like a typical liberal, she doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings addressing the actual conflict. So she she walks it back with 3PO. I mean, come on. Cowards and sellouts. Pig dogs. <laughs> but um, Chewie takes... Here's a question I yeah. have. Does everyone understand Chewbacca? Because for the longest time, I thought only Han Solo could understand what Chewbacca says. Possibly Lando, but... Throughout this chapter, we've got, like, Leia, like, understanding what Chewbacca's saying. Yeah. So, is it just, like, I don't know. I, I think that's sort of addressed with their time on Kashyyyk. Like, you know, when uh, Leia had an easier time understanding the Wookiee with a speech impediment. He was still speaking Wookiee. But she, like, I, I guess she's had enough time around Chewie that she's picked some up. Um... But yeah, it does seem like it's not quite the same kind of. Uh, and of course, C three PO understands him because he speaks six million languages and all that. But uh, yeah, it, it is. I would guess that maybe the sub. It seems like it seems like like uh, like uh, like like uh, like having your cake and eating it too. Like he's he's indecipherable to to the reader, but everybody in the cast understands what he's saying. Yeah, I I think, and I realize now it's kind of funny that there are two main characters in Star Wars who do that. There's there's Chewie and R two D two, and that seems like kind of laying it on thick. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I figure that's a gimmick you can use for one of those guys. But isn't there also Jabba the Hutt? Yes, there's Jabba the Hutt. There's the Jawas. This is all over Star Wars. Interesting. We'll have to do a bit of a deeper dive in that. I think. At least Greedo got subtitles. Yeah, Greedo got subtitles, which... Uh, th- who knows why... I'm starting to think this uh, whole franchise isn't very <laughs> well thought out. Wait, you're telling me this is cobbled together by some 70s guys' kind of vague recollections of uh, of uh, uh, Flash Gordon combined with, uh, you know, some, some 70s... Uh, Akira Kurosawa, Akira Kurosawa movies. movies, and then with a with a sprinkling of new age hippie bullshit from Esalen Institute. Are you telling me that's what this is? Anyway, it does make for a for a potent combination that is beloved. You say? beloved by millions. <laughs> but anyway, through all this, speaking of Chewie, he has been uh, taking this time to tinker with the ship to make their cover story about a malfunction hang together in case anyone comes looking. He's basically going in and breaking the ship in the ways that. You know, Kabarok said it was broken. Uh, and uh, so Kabarok goes, you know, he, he went ahead by himself. He, he returns while Chewie is still working on that and insists that, uh, well, they can't wait for him to finish. Leia has to come now. So he leads Leia and C-3PO past that big central building into one of the buildings with the bright windows where they uh, are met by a group of five Nogri. And there's an odd touch, which I thought was kind of neat, that the... The bright windows weren't coming from interior lighting shining out. It was that that was like decoration on the building that just had these panels with light shining out of it. And then, but inside, it was actually kind of dim. So, I don't know. It was kind of a neat touch. Uh, Kabarak. Can we talk about my favorite part of this whole chapter? It's, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, like, like uh, snakes on a plane where it's like, you know, okay, you just add snakes plus plane, it's just a winning combination. You add 
Timothy Zahn having to describe breasts. It's a winning combination. <laughs> yes, that is. I have. I have a note for that. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we have a couple beats to get to for that. But I'll, I'll let you actually read. If you have the. If you have it up, I'll let you actually read the passage. Um, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I have the passage okay, right great. here. So Kabarak has prostrates himself in front of these five Nogri. Uh, and says something, and then Leia whispers to 3PO for a translation, but the center Nogri tells them to shut up. Um, and Leia decides to play... She's such a good diplomat. She decides to play the Lady Vader card instantly, and says, Is this how you speak to the Mal-Ari-Ush? The Nogri all kind of stare at her, and then it, it also turns out an interesting touch that she can't really read them or their minds with the Force. But she kind of, you know, reiterates, I asked a question... Uh, and this is where we get the passage Ronnie was talking about. That just seems like a racist thing. Like you, you can't read a primitive mind. Yeah. Well, there's the racism comes up with the Nogri again. There's there's something I noted, and we'll we'll discuss later. But but please read Timothy's on describing an alien's body. Okay, just to set this up, uh, I was like really struggling with this chapter because it was just like pretty boring and. And and as a whole, like chapters ten through twelve were pretty boring. Yeah. But when I got to this cha- this bit of the chapter, oh boy, the, <laughs> uh, the the Nogri in the center took a step forward, and with the motion Leia noticed for the first time the two small hard bumps on the alien's upper chest beneath the loose tunic, a female <laughs> matrix. She murmured to three PO, remembering the word. Cabrack used earlier. <laughs> yes, so there's so much in that one paragraph. Uh, <laughs> for one, so these Vader-faced fuckers are mammals. They're mammals, and they have two small hard bumps. And I, yeah, well, that was again. That's my first thought. With like, I mean, I know it's like a classic science fiction thing to give the aliens big old hooters, you know. We've all played Mass Effect. We we've all seen uh, the Jedi uh, Return of the Jedi with the dancer in Jabba's palace. Um, but it is always so weird. And and with that, I mean, this is probably. I mean, my immediate thought was uh, the the live action Ninja Turtles where the girl turtle Venus de Milo had breasts for some reason. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which does make you wonder if like. I don't know. I, I would I would hate to nurse a baby turtle. That just sounds like a really bad time. Uh, but the uh, but in that part, and they and it's like they're they're in a plastron, so like you can't even nurse. So what the yeah. fuck is the point? Uh, the point is oh right to to uh, to uh, to uh, appeal to, to sickos. titillate <laughs> exactly. But I think that it's really hilarious following that right up with. The fact that the Nogri word for matriarch is matrach. Because it, it's like matrach, she murmured to 3PO, remembering the word Kabarak had used earlier. A female who is leader of a local family or subclan structure, the droid translated. So, Timothy Zahn just literally just took the word matriarch, a well-known English word, and just kind of garbled it slightly to make the Nogri word matrach. Lazy stuff, dude. Lazy stuff. Side note, I love the line, 3PO hated being yelled at, because it's like, <laughs> boy, 3PO, you're going to get yelled at a whole lot more in the rest of this book. 
It's true. And I think for someone who hates to get yelled at, he, he sure does make everyone want to yell at him. It's a real, it's a sad moment. Uh, but this, uh, this Matrox sniffs at Leia as proof of uh, her being Mal Ari-Ush and greets her as Lady Vader. But says, I greet you, Lady Vader, but I do not welcome you. And uh, Leia says, may I ask why not? <laughs> Again, continuing with her rather imp- you know, imperious tone she's taking. And uh, so Matrox asks, did you serve the Emperor? Do you now serve our Lord, the Grand Admiral? No, to both questions, Leia told her. Then you bring discord and poison among us. Um, so kind of setting up what the kind of the conflict will be between Leia and Matrox there. Uh, just at this moment, though, Chewie bursts in the door and snarls a warning. Imperial shuttles are approaching. The Nogri uh, will honor their pledge of protection, however, and so they hide Leia and Chewie in the village bakehouse to camouflage their non-Nogri heat signatures from any Imperial sensors. Um, so then those, uh, those, those, those sh- 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 the shuttles set down, and uh, Thrawn and Peleon exit. Peleon is ordered to hang back for a little bit until the tech team arrives to check out Kabarok's ship. And then Thrawn sets himself up in the, uh, the, big, the big building on the high seat to hold court. And uh, they go through all the... Again, so Peleon has the spacism too. He, Peleon says, is thinking how they're going through all the nonsense ritual. And like I don't know, dude, you're 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 an officer in the Imperial Navy. Like you Nazis love all kinds of nonsense ritual crap. Um, but uh, after a little bit of that, uh, Thrawn. I don't know. I got to side with Playon. I don't like these guys. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure it all gets pretty uh, pretty tedious. Playon's a no nonsense guy. Uh, and after. Uh, after after a little of this, uh, Thrawn grills Karbak, whose story is that after barely escaping Kashyyyk, because the Wookiees mistook him being knocked out for him being dead, he escaped, got away in his ship, transmitted his report, and then took a month off to just kind of think about, you know, life and death and stuff. <laughs> it says that he went to go think and meditate. And Thrawn was like, for a month? And he says, I had a lot to think about. <laughs> So, um, uh, but there was something that came up that, uh, was addressed in one of the notes that we read in the Oops All Notes episode, because, um, yeah, here we go, uh, yeah, Peleon or, or somebody is noting, um, the three females who'd met the shuttle stood facing them with the second tier of elders another pace back. Standing with the females, his steel gray skin, a marked contrast to their older, darker gray, was a young Nogri male. So, do you remember in that note where it said, like, Zahn had this idea about the, uh, the Nogri being born pale white and then gradually turning black as they grew older and aged? But he decided not to do that and just made them gray? I, I didn't realize that what he meant with that note is they're still born pale white. They just go, turn darker and darker gray, but not strictly to black. <laughs> so it's thereby avoiding any <laughs> weird racial uh, uh, notes on, on it, which I did, did he forget that he did that or did, did, did he genuinely think that like that makes it like better or okay or different enough? Well, well, he brings up race in chapter twelve. We'll get to that in a in a bit. 
So after uh, after grilling Karabak, um, the tech team reports in that the malfunctions on the ship check out with Karabak's story. But they can't say for sure whether it was intentional or accidental damage. So Karabak skates by this time, but Thrawn orders that once his ship has been repaired, he is to be reassigned to a different sector. You know, his whole... His whole uh, cadre got killed, so we gotta we gotta reassign you. Thrawn is pretty sure Karabak is holding something back, so uh, he orders the scanning crew to take a look at the ship before the tech crew gets in there to do repairs. And they're also going to hide a probe droid's recording stuff in one of the decontamination droids stationed in the village to record the goings on. And we'll learn more about what the decontamination droids are doing in Chapter Twelve, also. Uh, which is, again, and I think we'll talk about after we finish with the recap, but there's a kind of very confused and muddled chronology happening here that I, I, I think I'd like to talk about, too. Um, but that is pretty much the... I'd like to talk about how... Oh, yeah. I'd like to talk about how uh, Thrawn is suffering from uh, some decay in terms of uh, how good a villain he is. Because when I was reading these yeah. chapters, I was struck by the comparison my mind made, which was that... He's basically Superintendent Chalmers. <laughs> he is. He's 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 Superintendent Chalmers. So like you got yeah. you got you got Cabarac like saying, uh, oh yeah, I I had you know I had uh, Aurora Borealis in my kitchen, and uh, Throng's like, can I see it? Uh, uh, no. It's like okay. <laughs> like she she just seems very gullible these outrageous lies about like, yeah, I spent a whole month meditating and I didn't even do it at home. I, yeah, yeah. I, I did it somewhere else. Yeah. That's the ticket. <clears throat> yeah. It's really, he, he's, he's, it, it feels like there, it feels like the, the, it feels like Zahn is overcorrecting for like Thrawn being too competent in the first book. Sure. So now he's just sort of, uh, like just gullible. And, like it's easy to take him for a ride. Well, he's easily uh, relative snowed, to the right. first book. Yeah, like he he's he's like everyone is kind of you know their little excuses are fine. And 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 the the I guess the only touch of the old Thrawn there is that he's a little suspicious, <laughs> so he's gonna leave a recording device there instead of like out torturing some guys or something. I don't know. It does seem you know it's. And like you can only you can only do like the heroes almost get caught by Thrawn so many times before it becomes tiresome <laughs> and repetitive. Well, speaking of hey, tiresome and repetitive is the name of this section of the book. Once we get back to the Nogri village, um, but we won't be back there for a minute because it's time for chapter eleven, and for Timothy Zahn's favorite way to open a chapter, a character waking up. <laughs> He has done this so many times, uh, but in this case, it's at least it's not Luke waking up. I love the I love out. the line. Uh, I love the line where Han says, or uh, referring to Han, it's, if there was one thing his years on the wrong side of the law had hammered into him, it was the knack of going from deep sleep to full alertness in the space between heartbeats. <laughs> now, I think that's the I think it's the methamphetamine. It's like yeah, he knows when to cheese it when the fuzz are on him. That's right. That's right. Um, well, you know, now that he's a respectable family man, every now and then, sorry, the space fuzz. That he's a uh, space fuzz. Yes, uh, Zon has to remind us that he has a, a checkered past, uh, which will come up a little bit in a little bit. 
Um, but Han wakes up in his bunk on the Lady Luck, which is, of course, within the docking bay of one of those mysterious dreadnought cruisers that uh, cleared his ass out of New Cove, pulled him out of hot water. And they talk about uh, how far out they must be by now, traveling for 47 hours at point four, so at most they can be 150 light years. Um, Cena radios in to say... This drove me up the wall. <laughs> Uh, elaborate on that if you want. Like I was trying to, I was trying to do like, I, it was like a fucking uh, word problem in my head. It's like, okay, transit <laughs> time is forty seven hours. The if dreadnought could pull a point yeah. four equals one hundred fifty light years from New Cove. I don't know what any of these fucking variables are. <laughs> right, it wasn't supposed to be. Done. I don't know what anything is in relation to anything else. Why are you giving me this information, Timothy? <laughs> It's world building. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's a little. It's, it's nonsense. It's, it's sprinkling in details. Well, so that's the kind of thing that I like, though. I, I I've mentioned before. I appreciate that Zahn is actually like letting us know how long it takes for anyone to get anywhere. But I do agree that like talking about point four and then using their the calculators to work out how far away they could be. They could be. Uh, you know, that was a little much. Um, Oh, great. It, it takes two days to get from space to another part of space. <laughs> another part of space. Terrific. Thanks, Tim. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so Cena radios in to say that they have arrived and that they can follow her ship down after the Peregrine releases them from the dock, a name which makes Han go quiet. And Lando's kind of asking him, like, uh, what's the deal there, buddy? And... Uh, and Han says that there's this Corellian legend, which is Ronnie. Are you familiar with the uh, with the legendary figure, the Wandering Jew? Yes. Yeah. So is that not what he's talking about? Because Han says here, the Peregrine was an old Corellian scare legend they used to tell when I was a kid. He was some ghostly, old ghostly guy who'd been cursed to wander around the world forever and never find his home again. Used to make me feel real creepy. That's the the wandering Jew story of of medieval folklore. The, the idea being that there was a a resident of Jerusalem who mocked Jesus Christ while he was on his way to be crucified, and then Jesus cursed him so that he could never he he would live until the time when Christ came back. So and he would never find his home again. So there is a a uh, a cursed Jewish man wandering all around the world. Uh, who could never rest until the time when when Jesus comes back for his second coming, uh, and that's it. What this is? Okay, right? I, I I think I'm picking up what you're laying down. Han Solo, space yeah. Jew? Question <laughs> mark. We'll just we'll just pin that up on the board and come back to that. I just thought it was an interesting pull for for Timothy. I, I guess maybe part of his medieval folklore, like the uh, the fortress with a tree going in it, that's evil. Maybe that's he's he's pulling he's pulling that that Central European folklore stuff out, um, but uh, so they you know they're let go from the from the docking bay. They follow Cena's ship down to, and tell me if any of this sounds familiar. They follow Cena's ship down to a camouflaged compound out in the middle of the woods, surrounded by gun turrets and with 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 camo nets thrown over stuff. Does that sound like any other place we've been? in this trilogy before uh and this will tie into other things i have to say about yeah i think so um 
But it's a little more militarized than Talon Cards uh, camp, though. It's got some gun turrets. It's got some KAAC free runner assault vehicles. Again, thank you, Tim. That means so much to me. Han doesn't like it, but when Lando asks if they should bug out, he concedes that, you know, with those three dreadnought cruisers over their heads, eh, they're not that's not, they're not really in any position to try to flee. So they land, they head down the ramp to a little transport skiff where Cena and her entourage await them. And here was another another old thron, uh, Zonism tossed out. Quote, most of the others were dressed in casual tan uniform of an unfamiliar but vaguely Corellian cut. Cena, by contrast, was still in the nondescript civilian garb she'd been wearing on New Cove. So again, we're given, to, to paint a mind picture, we're given the words unfamiliar and nondescript. <laughs> I makes it sound like they're wearing like uh, uh, cult clothing. Yeah, yeah, it do- it does. It sounds like they're all wearing uh, yeah, like the jumpsuits that the master prefers. Um, hey, maybe they are in a cult because this commander guy seems pretty. You know, they're all pretty in awe of him. Uh, now, now uh, listeners will remember that. That Daniel speculated that the commander was Talon Card, but in fact, it's not Talon Card at all. It's not at all. Um, the mystery of who the commander is is somebody we've never heard of, <laughs> yes. which is how so you best do a to, mystery. And that's the really the best way to do it, so that the reveal really hits hard. The skiff arrives at quote an admin type building. Don't know what that is. And the guards tell Han that the commander wants to see him alone first. So Han enters, and instead of an office, it's like a, a war room, kind of reminiscent of the command center on Hoth. And amidst the stand a man that Han recognizes, Senator Bell Iblis? <laughs> Whoa! No way! <laughs> it couldn't be! What in the... F- ah. Welcome to Peregrine's Nest, Captain Solo. And I, I immediately thought that, like the the way the way Han is reacting to this is like, like all the QAnon people reacting to uh, Vincent Fuchsia, aka JFK Jr. Because <laughs> much like JFK Jr., uh, Bell Iblis is supposedly dead. Is supposedly dead. Right? So it's, Han is starstruck, though. He said it'd be hard for any Karelian to forget you, sir. <laughs> but he's apparently been presumed dead since the early days of the Empire. He was one of the senators who didn't go along with uh, Palpatine, I guess. Um, and so he was forced to... Uh, Which again raises the point of what the timeline yeah, is here. It's, well, here's here's what's really crazy about the timeline, because guess what? Senator Bell Iblis has met Han Solo before when Han Solo was an 11-year-old schoolboy. So apparently, Han was... At least as old as 11 years old before Order 66 and the Empire was established and all that stuff. He was at least in middle school. Well, um, that makes sense because the Empire was only around for like 20 years. Well, that's true. I guess that does hang together a little better. It still doesn't... It's it's still... But yeah, this, like, this you know, chapter is rotten with like, you know, uh, stuff about uh, Han Solo's boyhood. <clears throat> yeah, it's a bit odd. Um, which I imagine was, uh, established in a bunch of books I never read. Well, there was, that was one of the, uh, in the eighties, there was a trilogy, the Han Solo trilogy, which were his adventures before, uh, he met Luke Skywalker, which we, which we may end up reading those. That might be a fun project. There was also a Lando trilogy. 
Uh, that would I really want to get want to get to. Um, but no, they're kind of talking with each other. There's probably uh, a fucking trilogy of that robot that goes gonk. <laughs> I'm a little offended that you would put Lando on the same uh, level as the robot that goes gonk. He's a he's a main guy. Um, but uh, this, he wasn't even even in the first one. Yeah, yeah, he, he's he's a real Bell Eblis. He wasn't in the first book where we're supposed to take him seriously as a main character. Uh, <laughs> but now, uh, so Han is kind of working out like what all uh, you know. So the, the Senator Bell Iblis uh, says like the Emperor wasn't quite able to kill me at Enkron, but he might just as well have done so. He took everything I had except my life, my family, my profession. Even all future contacts with mainstream Corellian society, he forced me outside the law I'd worked so hard to create and maintain. Um, but he remembers Han. Uh, Han doesn't remember. He's a little embarrassed. Han doesn't remember this at all. But Bell Iblis fondly recalls that he made a visit to a school, you know, to talk to the little shits about whatever. And he fondly recalls a little mop-headed rascal who asked him some rather pointed questions about the anti-alien bias creeping into... The Republic's laws here in this kind of late stage of the Republic. Uh, as Han recalls, it, it must have been on a dare from one of his kids, but of one of his friends. But Belt Iblis was impressed enough by that that he kept an eye on the lad. And so Han is really embarrassed then because he's thinking, "Let's unpack that for a moment." <laughs> because this is suggesting that that there are some school chums that are like asking really detailed questions about. Uh, systemic racism in galactic politics. <laughs> like, elbowing him, like, do it, Han, do it, do it. Yeah. And and then, and after that, of course... I also just love how he's just starstruck by, by Bell Iblis, this old man. <laughs> that, that, has, that has never come up before. Like, he, he wasn't so important to Han's life that he would ever mention it to anybody. Um... I also like the idea that a senator was requesting, like... <laughs> now I'm imagining Han going, No, I've always been a Bell Iblis bro. Right, right, right. <laughs> I also like the idea of a senator of the Galactic Republic asking for, like, I, I don't know, permanent record updates <laughs> on some middle school kid that he met. Um, I've been keeping a somewhat loose eye on you ever <laughs> since. It's kind of creepy. It's like... You asked me a question that when you were 11 years old, and I've been following your life ever since. All right, speaking of timelines, see if you can work out what's being talked about here. Uh, Han grimaced. You probably weren't very impressed by what you saw. There were times, Bell Iblis agreed. I'll admit to having been extremely disappointed when you were dismissed from the Imperial Academy. You'd shown such considerable promise there, and I felt at the time that a strongly loyal officer corps was one of the few defenses the Republic still had left against the collapse toward Empire. So, was it the Republic Academy, or was it the Imperial Academy? Or is it the same institution that changed its name, so now it's the Imperial Academy, so Bell Iblis calls it the Imperial Academy? Maybe they just, like, sold off the, the naming rights. Like maybe now it's like the 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 MetLife <laughs> Academy, the 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 Doritos uh, uh, Academy for boys. Um, my best guess here is that so the Imperial Academy is mentioned in Star Wars because Luke wants to go to the Imperial Academy to train to be a starfighter pilot. 
Uh, so maybe Tim was like, well, that's the canon name for this institution. I don't know what it was called during the Old Republic days, so I'll default to calling it the Imperial Academy. But again, it, all, it's, all it does is just remind us of how muddled that transition in timeline was in 1991. Of course, now, of course, we have a, a lavish three-movie treatment of, of the end of the Republic. But, uh, of course, in 1991, things were a little... Uh, well, sometimes it's treating, like, the Empire as a, as a clean break from the Old Republic, a la, say, you know, Nazi Germany. Right. But sometimes it's just, like, a, a shitty period of the Old Republic, like, I don't know, uh, the orange, the former guy's uh, presidency. <laughs> Where right, you have right. all of these like, institutions that still exist in continuous form. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's something to that because, of course, we have in in a New Hope there the well, the council scene where Vader chokes that guy out. Uh, they talk about how the Emperor has officially dissolved the Senate. So, which you know, twenty years into <laughs> into your imperial reign. Well, I don't know. You know, the Roman Senate persisted throughout the entirety of the imperial period. It actually existed. Into well, the is he going to build that wall next? Government. Yeah, yeah, he's going to build that wall. This is all very just odd. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Iblis was actually a little relieved though, because uh, under the circumstances, he says it was just as well that you got it when you did, because he's pretty sure if Han had made it through the academy, he would have been headstrong enough to have been purged when the emperor was sort of solidifying his control over the navy um so uh yeah this so is just like a really weird like thing a... to say it's like it's like you know uh it's a good thing you washed out of imperial academy you would have been murdered <laughs> you, you you wouldn't have made it in the uh in the fascist takeover buddy um so Bell Iblis explains a little more about the Peregrine's Nest. It is a, uh, it's a parapetech. It's like a, a mobile camp. Uh, so they never stay anywhere for long. They're, they're, and what they're doing, I don't know, because they didn't participate in the rebellion. They're just this independent military force kind of hanging around. Um, so who, who knows? Um, but after all this, the nature of Han's mission to New Cove comes up, and therefore the nature of Brelia's dealings with Bell Iblis comes up and the former senator invites Han uh, to his headquarters to kind of speak a little more on it. Um, And that's where we, uh, that's where we leave off the uh, Han and and Lando and Bell Iblis. Uh, And I don't know. I, I think we'll save more discussion of this for the, for the wrap up after we finish the, uh, the, uh, the recap, but I have some things to say about the character Bell Iblis and what he is doing in this novel. But for now we shift our, uh, uh please use his first name. Sorry. I, in my notes, I just Garm, Garm, Garm Bell, Garm Bell Iblis. So Garm Bell Iblis may have some dealings with Borsk Falia that we'll have to find out about. You know, Borsk is calling up his friend Garm. <sighs> but uh there's only so many gibberish names I can take before I start losing interest. Yeah. Yeah, um I- I'm with you. I-, I think you can I will say this one thing I think George Lucas has a touch for is his gibberish names tend to not grate on me as much, but I don't know, we'll see. Uh so we cut back to the Imperials, and there is a 
a just a stupendous moment that I have to read in its entirety because I just about plots when I read this. The door slid open, and Pleon stepped into the darkened antechamber of Thrawn's private command room. Darkened and apparently empty, but Pleon knew better than that. I have important information for the Grand Admiral, he said loudly. I don't have time for these little games of yours. They are not games, Rook's gravelly voice mewed. Right at, Can you mew in a gravelly voice? Anyway, mewed right in Pleon's ear, making him jump despite his best efforts not to. Stalking skills must be practiced or lost. Practice on someone else, Pleon growled. I have work to do. He stepped forward to the inner door, silently cursing Rook and the whole Nogri race. <laughs> Useful tools of the Empire they might well be, but he dealt with this kind of close-knit clan structure before, and he'd never found such primitives to be anything but trouble in the long run. The door to the command room slid open, revealing a darkness lit only by softly glowing candles. And I was immediately like, it's finally happening. They're giving into the passion. At long last! Palan and Thrawn, Burns and Smithers. It's really, really happening. But uh, I was cruelly disappointed, though. I just thought Thrawn was going to be naked. Yeah, or something. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, Captain Palaon, uh, you caught me uh, at a disadvantage. Or whatever. It's just to have the door slide open to be lit only by softly glowing candles. Like, buddy, that's a Michael Bolton video, okay? That's, <laughs> that's where my mind is going to go. Or just like him doing naked exercises like William Sadler in the beginning of Die Hard 2. <laughs> but it turns out the uh, the little candles are not... Uh, they're, they're not candles at all, but they are, in fact, holographic images of exquisitely deep, delicate, lighted sculptures. They're Corellian flame miniatures. One of that very short list of art forms which others have tried to copy but never been able to truly duplicate. So this is the Corellian art form that he is going to study in order to better understand his opponents because he uh has some he has some it's tr they're nothing more than shaped trans optical fibers pseudo luminescent plant material and a pair of ghoulish light sources uh so i don't know i i, I think they're just uh you know it's just little it's just little it's like warhammer miniatures i guess that sounds like garbage art yeah. Well, you know, they're making uh they're they're making art out of the garbage. Uh but uh so Thrawn invites a plan in. Um they take a look, they review footage from this new cove incident, and Palan notes that our old friends are back, so maybe they've had run ins with Bell Iblis's organization before. But Thrawn points out the real onion in the ointment here is that one of the ships being chased off was the Lady Luck, presumably with Lando and Han on board. So they didn't take the bait to go to Palanhi to be ambushed there. And so they also seem to be... Thrawn concludes that they must be involved in a bid to add new strength to the Rebellion military by bringing on the Bell Iblis organization. So Thrawn has concluded from observing the tape that a Corellian led that action. And Pleon recalls that Han is a Corellian. So that's why Thrawn's been looking at Corellian... Uh, Christmas light sculpture. Um, Thrawn then pulls up... I do like the line of dialogue where Thrawn says, uh, obviously something more important came than their concerns for Akbar's reputation, as though, like, why would they ever give a shit about <laughs> Akbar's reputation? <laughs> right. Your whole plan was based on them being very invested in Akbar's reputation, but now you're like, oh yeah, there was lots of stuff more important than that, though. 
All right, Thrawn. Uh, but uh, so, but Thrawn has. See, he's getting he's stupider. Getting stupider. He's getting stupider. Um, but Thrawn has a he has a, a a new card he's going to play, so to speak. He calls up the uh, Captain Dorja of the Relentless, which was the Star Destroyer which led the raid on New Cove, uh, and uh, asks to speak with his prisoner, Niles Farrier. That's right, the starship thief we were introduced to at the beginning of this book and is now like a, a prominent guy. This is his third appearance. <laughs> I think he's been in the book more than Leia at this point. Um, but we have Niles Farrier, and Thrawn has him by the short and curlies. There's like pages and pages of their back and forth about stuff, but the point is that like he's he's been caught dead to rights, but Thrawn has a deal for him. To uh, He has three months as a you know famous starship thief to either get those dreadnoughts or their precise location to Thrawn. And he will be given a freighter equipped with a, quote, totally unbreakable doomsday mechanism with exactly three standard months set on its clock. <laughs> so that so that Farrier knows he means business. And I did like that because that just sounds like a Doctor Doom thing. Like, that's some classic villain stuff. <laughs> An unbreakable doomsday mechanism. I got standard months as opposed to, I don't know, space months. Yeah. Well, it's standard months instead of, like, uh, Tatooine months, which are twice as fast because there's two suns. You know. Uh, I guess months are based on moons. I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, but after that exchange, Plan lets Thrawn know why he came here in the first place. The report on Carbox's ship is ready, and they found Wookiee hair. All over the place. Everywhere. There's Wookiee hair. Disgusting. So Thrawn surmises. And again, here's Thrawn being stupid. He doesn't he doesn't get the right end of the stick. Thrawn surmises that this must mean that Karbak was held and interrogated for that month that he was gone. Uh, so Thrawn then orders a shuttle and strong escort be made ready because he's going down to the planet to teach the Nogri a lesson. And speaking of the Nogri, that's our transition into Chapter 12, which um, mostly ends up being kind of a major info dump. Hey, look, it's Leia waking up. It's Leia waking up (laughs) for the second time in three chapters. Leia waking up. So we have some... I also like how the the smoky smell is reminiscent of wood fires of the Ewoks of Endor, but also it's a... Warm, homier aroma reminding her of the campout she'd had as a child on Alderaan. Yeah, you're just so thinking it's simultaneously of the woods, Endor and Alderaan. <laughs> right. So you're it's just like, of, I don't know, why yeah. not throw in some tattooing just while you're at it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminded her of what Luke had said about Dagobah, which is a secret, by the way. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's the opposite of Hoth, which is a place in Star Wars. Hey, you know, and this actually had me thinking. In the in the first Star Wars trilogy, there are only like five different planet locations, right? Because we have Tatooine, yes, and then we have uh, Yavin, and then we have uh, shit uh, Hoth, I guess. Yeah, we have Hoth, Bespin, Bespin, and then back to Tatooine, and then back to Dagobah, and then Endor. So that's seven. There's seven different plants across three movies, which doesn't seem like that good of an average for like a, a wide ranging space opera. They really made it go a long way. Um, 
Well, they only have so many different environments that you can do. You have, like, fire yeah. planet, yeah. ice planet, swamp planet, right. desert planet, uh, gas, uh, city planet. planet. You know, all city the Lego planet. playsets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, yes, Leia wakes up on, uh, she and has, is reminded of two of the planets she's been to. Um, and really, I'm going to level with all y'all. Uh, chapter 12 is mostly just, it's this major info dump. Um, there's really, uh, so the, really the, the way to do it is just going to be to explain to you what Leia learns about the Nogri. Um, but before we do, I want to give some credit where it's due. Zahn described a building again, and he described it in a lot of detail that's actually very evocative. Um, so I can, it has your Duduka, which is the main building of the village, seen now in full daylight was far more elaborate than she'd realized. The pillars spaced every few meters around the walls seemed to be composed of whole sections of tree trunks stripped of bark and smoothed to a black marble finish. The shimmery wood that made up the rest of the wall was covered to perhaps half its height with intricate carvings. As they got closer, she could see that the reinforcing metal band that encircled the building just beneath the eaves was also decorated. Clearly, the Nogri believed in combining function and art. The whole structure was perhaps 20 meters across and 4 meters high, with another 3 or 4 meters for the conical roof. Thanks, man! That's actually very helpful, and it's neat! I was able to, you know, form an image in my imagination. Oh, I thought you were going to um, praise Timothy for uh, the Nogri communal bakehouse, you know? 420, <laughs> man. <laughs> and it's communal, dude. Fucking 420 communism, bro. That's what I'm all about. Let's all just get together and share our weed. You know what I'm saying? Smoke up those spliffs. Big doinks. Smoke up those big doinks and hark unto the tale of the matriarch. Ugh. <laughs> but Leia ends up in a deep conversation with the no green matriarch. And the whole point of this is to give the reader an idea of, like, what is the Nogri's deal? Why are they like this? And what is Leia going to have to navigate in trying to peel them away from the Empire. Uh, so what she finds out is that the the Nogri, for a long time, had a very fractious clan-based society all over the planet. Um, constant warfare that really sharpened them as warriors. Um, but then came the big space battle over their planet, which was disastrous not only because of kind of random, or rather stray, uh, turbo laser shots, you know, raining down on the planet, but a number of spaceships crashed into the world itself, which spewed a bunch of toxic chemicals from all of the spaceship components out into the environment. Uh, and Leia kind of note, Leia realizes that, well, for the really noxious stuff, that would really only be in older spaceships, exactly the kind that the rebellion would have been deploying in that battle. So it really was our stuff that poisoned this planet not only poisoned it but these massive starship impacts triggered tectonic activity like tsunamis and earthquakes that further destroyed everything and then came the acid rain from all the chemicals that were spewed up into uh into the sky between the volcanic explosions and all the poison loaded onto the onto the starships um so with all that uh in the aftermath of all that is when Darth Vader came to the, the planet's surface and uh, the, the, the clans had all gathered around this, this area where is now the one green spot on the planet because that was their 
their usual gathering place for discussing you know events between wars. Um, so they were all gathered there. Darth Vader and his stormtroopers make an appearance, and uh, some of the more hot-headed ones begin to attack. Uh, and Leia was like, oh, and they were all slaughtered. Oh, no. The thought of effectively unarmed primitives taking on Imperial troops made her wince. Which, for one, do you not remember, like, five years ago <laughs> when the Ewoks killed a bunch of guys? Um, but the Matriarch retorted, they were not slaughtered. No one's mistaking the pride in her voice. Uh, only two of the th- of, only three of the two tens died in the battle. Um, so, really... Lord Vader was very impressed. It was only when he personally intervened and, like, force-choked him and slashed him with a lightsaber that they were defeated and, you know, surrendered and calmed down. Um, But then he offered peace, the blessing and aid of the Emperor. And so the way that this works is that they're basically the Nogri are under an IMF loan where they get food and medicine and tools delivered and the Empire supplies them with decontamination droids. Those are the decon droids to gradually restore the environment on their planet little by little. But Leia kind of susses out that they're really dragging it along. They're basically giving them the barest trickle of aid to keep them under the thumb of their imperial overlords and indebted to them without really providing any actual way out to pay off the debt and get clear of those obligations. Uh... Once again, I was I would urge our uh, urge our listeners to look into what the IMF did to Jamaica and Haiti to get an understanding of how this works in our world. Um, but anyway, uh, that's kind of the whole that's kind of the whole deal. Leia also has a lot of opinions about race. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah, let's talk about a few of those. <laughs> she found herself throwing throwing short glances at them as they walked, wondering at the light color of their skin. Uh, Cabarak's skin was a steel gray. The matriarchs uh, had been much darker. Did the Nogri consist of several distinct racial types, or was the darkening a natural part of their aging process? She made a mental note to ask Cabarak about it when she had a chance. And I'm just imagining that scene. It's like, hey, Cabarak, <laughs> you, uh, you Nogri, you no, have races, like- or is it just like an aging thing? <laughs> do, you, do you know what races are? Let me teach you. <laughs> Yeah. Beware white foreigners who come uh, asking you about race, for sure. But yeah, but again, like that's the like. I got this cool thing uh, called colorism that you might be interested in. <laughs> it's a, it's really cool. It's like racism, but even more specific. They get really wacky with it in Brazil. You're gonna love this. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the other the other so, thing so, I noted was I I really like the I really like the detail about the small Nogri children were playing with an inflatable ball. It was like you couldn't think of like a space way of like <laughs> depicting children, so it's like yeah, they're just playing with an inflatable ball. Yeah, like children, just you know, kids. It's being kids. Uh, but it's actually a Nogri child who kind of interrupts all this. Uh, oh, and I guess I should say one of the the ways that they pay their debt to the Empire is through uh, the, the military service of their sons. So they train them up and they send them, they send them out into the commando teams. So uh, they're kind of a little Janissary Corps, basically. Uh, but all this is interrupted by... Oh, I also child. like uh, C-3PO's uh, story time. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's discussing uh, clan history 
with them, yeah, doing the the history lessons. Um, and, and all the while... Uh, Complete with occasional sound effects. Yeah, and Kabarak is uh, showing uh, Wookiee some cool uh, Nogri holds and, and uh, like, jujitsu moves. So everyone's kind of having a good time. But this is all broken up when a child stumbled inside. The double doors flew open and a child stumbled inside. Maitrak, he all but squealed. Mirak Saki, Rachmani Verak. Karabak was on his feet in an instant. Out the corner of her eye, Leia saw three people. Oh, your Nogri's good, Daniel. Thank you. I always said, my, my, uh, my college Nogi professor said I had good pronunciation. What is it, she demanded. It is the flying craft of our Lord the Grand Admiral, the Matrox said, her, voice, her face and voice suddenly very tired and very alien. And it is coming here. And that's the end of chapter 12. And there's a lot to tease out here. One, in the space of three chapters, Thrawn has made a surprise visit to the village twice. <laughs> Which is just stupid. And no, it like it really feels like these the chapters really could have been combined uh, and avoided this, this back and forth with that. But more importantly, I... Ronnie, want to talk to you about Idris Elba. What was his name? Bell Eblis. And I thought... Ben Eblis. Garn Ben Eblis. Garn Bell Eblis. And I'm sorry. I thought we already had a figure in this novel who sort of reminds you a little bit of an older Han Solo who runs a secret operation out of a forest base who has access to dreadnought cruisers. Like, how is this not an extremely redundant character? Oh, and he's also kind of a wild card who, whose loyalties are unsure. Like, wh- why would you have Talon Card and this guy in the same novel? What the fuck is this? I thought you were going a completely different direction. Like, you know, we already have a, a really old guy who everyone thought was dead in Joris Kabath. Oh, you're right. Yes. <laughs> so it's retreading that other idea. What a weird... And I guess all of it was just made that much weirder by the fact that... Well, what what happened was uh, was Zahn was smoking some big doinks <laughs> and he was like, what if Talon Card was Joris Kabath, man? <laughs> And also, he knew Han Solo when he was a 7th grader. Like, what in the world? He groomed him. He groomed him. Maybe maybe this guy will get a little more differentiated as we go on. I'm not all that confident about that. Um, but just, this is so funny. It's so funny to introduce another character who's like salt-and-pepper-haired, older, whatever, with Dreadnought Cruisers. <laughs> And he's and he's like has a secret base. It's just like what a did it never occur to Zon that he's retreading character beats for his own other character, or does he just like really like this idea? I think he's a case where he like writes in chronological order and never looks back. I mean, I guess so. I would, I would hope so. I mean, he says he had like an outline for the trilogy ready before, you know, uh, well, for, for Necronomicon when he talked to it at the Sizzler with his friends using the code talking. And like, 
did it at no point did none of his friends <laughs> be like hey uh tim this guy sounds a lot like this other guy is this the same guy and i mean was it was it was it over the uh you know the, the chocolate fountain at the sizzler that they were discussing that no this is a totally different guy he's very different look he was a senator completely different i don't it's just really odd do we have do we do we do we have proof that he had an editor on this book? We don't. See, that's the thing. We need these author notes. That was such a ugh. I got to know. I got to have author notes on like where the idea for Bell Iblis came from. Um I'm presuming Betsy was assigned to him the whole time cuz she she had worked with him before and the whole because the whole trilogy was conceived of as a trilogy from the get-go and kind of organized that way. Maybe we were presuming organized that way. I imagine it must have been Betsy with him through the whole trilogy. But yeah, Betsy, girl, you got to step in. You got to step in. I mean, maybe it was too far along the creative process when she finally got a look at it. But holy moly. That was just really what stuck in my craw in this section. Um, But you can understand why. I think the listeners can understand why I thought this was some kind of weird roundabout way of introducing Talon Card again, right? And then it turned out to be even more... What if it turns out that, uh... What if it turns out that Idris Elba is, uh... Talon Card's dad? (laughs) That would at least... I would... Honestly, I would not be upset by that. It would be stupid, but I wouldn't be upset about it. Uh, so... So we do have that. Also, um, when was the last Ryan, time we, is actually a, we checked in with Mr. Card? I mean, it was like, what, the first... That was on that first episode for Dark Force Rising, right? So it must have been the first three chapters. I think it's been like five or six chapters since we've seen Talon Card or Mara Jade. Which is frankly criminal. Uh, and I don't know I don't know how we're going to let Zong Did Zong forget his own characters? It feels like it a lot of the time. I mean, we're still waiting for Joris Kabeoth to do something. You know, we're we're a third of the way into the book, and the only Joris Kabeoth we've gotten is him waking up <laughs> and putting on his robe. <laughs> so Putting on a dirty bathrobe and just wandering the streets. <laughs> Like, yeah, I think Timothy doesn't quite know what any of his guys are doing or what he should be doing. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, you know, he tightens it up a bit. But we are, like I said, we're a third of the way through this. Uh, and it's not looking great. Uh, from a kind of structure, from a kind of narrative structural way. Um, not, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this. It's not nearly as tightly plotted as Heir to the Empire was. And I'm not, and I want to stress, I'm not a plot guy. I don't, I'm not someone who gets upset about plot being a secondary concern in a work of literature. I honestly prefer books that are more interested in imagery and character and, and, and frankly, the craft of writing. I'm a lot more interested in that than I am in the, the A to B to C story points or whatever. But, but Tim, you're not writing. Well, you're not being serviced by this book I'm not, either. Exactly. That's the <laughs> what I was gonna say. <laughs> like in the absence of craft or depth of character or lush description imagery, then plot is a nice thing to kind of fall back on to hold your interest as a reader. And I don't think this is hanging together as well. Oy, but we'll we'll have to see. 
Uh, it was like throwing well, his playing a game is... of checkers against a chicken and losing. <laughs> that would be a good piece of fan art. Anyone out there who can draw Timothy Zahn playing a game of checkers against a chicken and obviously losing, uh, please bring that vision to life. And we will, uh, you'll get the no prize for the week. Anyway, this of course brings us to the premiere segment of the show, the one that has uh, that starts tongues wagging coast to coast. Uh, every time we drop an episode, you'll notice the uh, the trending topics on social media will light up with whatever it was we were talking about. Like that, who can forget that week that uh, everyone couldn't stop arguing about feathered dinosaurs? That was us. You know, we kicked off that discourse. So uh, that does bring us to, of course, uh, our debate segment into the Thronderdome, where uh, myself, uh, Dr. Daniel Dottie, will engage in neural combat with uh, the esteemed, undefeated Ronnie Gardaki, at least in his estimation. I would quibble with that, but it's nice to let Ronnie... Hey, what's your doctorate in, Daniel? Uh, Chiropractic. I thought that was their whole thing that they aren't doctors, so you could call them like by their first name. I mean, their their whole thing is that they're not doctors, but they still have like medical schools, so that they have credentials, so you can they they can make you call them doctors. Uh, it's like getting a you can get a doctor in naturopathy, right, uh, or naturopathy, whatever they call it. Um, but, I mean, uh, I thought if anything, you would have a doctorate in library sciences. <laughs> I, I do have a real masters of library science that is true but as for as befits a so fake, so we should be calling you master dotty you should i told my wife that and she was not happy about it after i graduated but you know them's the rules i don't make them up but anyway i figured because you know since i have a bogus uh doctorate in my name i should i should pick a bogus thing to have a doctorate in. um in any case uh <laughs> What were we even talking about? Oh, the debate segment. Into the Thronderdome. And speaking of trending topics on social media, Ronnie, what is the what is up for debate today? What are we what are we going to the mat for? We're debating social media itself. Yep, you guessed it, folks. We're arguing Facebook v Twitter. The big two. Uh if you are an old person. <laughs> Yeah, all right. Well, this is going to get spicy because there's been a lot of, um, well, let's just say neither company has really covered themselves in glory lately, but uh, we'll see who gets the shorter end of the stick. I think for sheer challenge's sake, I shall take the side of Twitter being the superior social media platform. So, Ronnie, how about you sell me? Sell me, why don't you? On Facebook, what do you got? Well, I can't really sell you, Daniel, on on Facebook because uh, Facebook is is less uh, the best social media platform and more of the least worst. Um, it it has all of the all of the facets you want to hate about social media in that it uh, it radicalizes your grandpa into into hating Antifa and drag queens. Uh, it steals your information shamelessly for monetization and advertising purposes and uh the the owner of uh facebook is a is a dweeby little creep um but i would argue that twitter is all of those same things but worse (laughs) 
For example, uh, in uh, in in the case of uh, Mark Zuckerkorn, uh, he was played by Jesse Heisenberg in the award-winning film The Social Network, directed by David Fincher, whereas Elon Musk starred in an episode of Saturday Night Live where he played Wario. I think the difference is clear. <laughs> hmm. Okay. B- bold, uh, bold assertions right out the gate. Um, allow me to counter you. Yes, uh, Facebook is the place where boomers go to have their brains scrambled to believe that their trans grandkid is trying to genocide them. Uh, but let us not uh, let us not forget that Twitter also is a very powerful uh, platform that can convince Zoomers that the Maoist third worldist uh, revolt is just uh, is just one day away. If only you can. Uh, get your uh, classmates to think the way you do. Yes, if it comes to brainworms, friends, there's nothing better than Twitter. And let's just go ahead and say, what do we enjoy most about social media? It is the brainworms. Who doesn't love looking, gawking at stupid freaks as they spew their nonsense out onto the internet? And friends, you have not seen unhinged freaks spewing until you've seen Twitter. Especially, of course, under the uh, exemplary guidance of the current uh, CEO who attempted to back out of the, uh, the deal that he made to buy the company. And in fact, the company sued him to make him buy it. Uh, so you know he really cares and believes in his mission there. Um, but it has really ramped up the uh, absolute just morass of dog shit. But here's another thing, even if, okay, so let's say you're not into gawking at the stupidest thoughts you've ever encountered in your entire life. What is there still for you that Twitter can provide like nothing else? And I'll tell you, that is a social media platform where you can get on there and call, oh, I don't know, let's say Ted Cruz, a, uh, a simpering doofus in the replies to a a post he made. And there's a non-zero chance that he will see it. The thing about Twitter that I think really every social media uh, application just does does not have is the personal touch. For whatever reason, and I'm going to say brainworms, actual real-life celebrities and politicians are directly posting to that platform without any interns interceding between you and them. When you send an image of a pig pooping on its own balls... To uh, to say, oh, I don't know, uh, Ron DeSantis. There's a good chance that the man himself will see it. Eh, maybe not him. He doesn't seem to have as personal a touch. But the point I'm getting is that Twitter is a magical place where at 8 a.m. on a Friday morning, Kevin fucking Smith can get on your ass about having lightly ribbed the uh, tagline for Chasing Amy a movie that came out 25 years ago, and he can give you a little lip about, wow, you know, way to dunk on a movie that came out 25 years ago. And then I can be like, hey, wow, way to spend your Friday morning dunking on some random weirdo like me for dunking on your stupid movie about a lesbian who stops being a lesbian. Um, Kevin Smith, I will never forgive you. Uh, enemies list. It's called forever. bisexuality, Daniel. Get with it. Yeah, what am I, Newsweek in the 90s? We've been over this. <laughs> But 
So it's so to counter all of your points about Facebook being the least bad social media option, I would agree from the standpoint of just kind of the general experience you're having. But if you are someone who does not shy away from the rougher edges of life, if you're someone who seeks to grasp human nature by the horns and look it square in the eyes and see the total emptiness and fear that lies behind that, buddy, Twitter is the place for you. Well, I would see your point and argue that Facebook is actually superior because it's a a closed circuit uh, in general, uh, in that for the most part, only your so-called friends can see your content. And that means it's like the second best uh, uh, social media service next door, in which you can... (laughs) In which you can use uh, use your relative uh, freedom of of not uh, not running into someone uh, you don't uh, necessarily know, and so you can just talk shit uh, within your closed gated community. And uh, and also, you know, on Facebook you can post uh, pictures of of a baby or a dog, and uh, you can be safe in the knowledge that someone with an anime avatar is not jerking off to those pictures as we speak. (laughs) Which is not the case with Twitter. Uh, That's true. There is a a higher chance of that happening. That's one reason why I'm not uh, very generous with personal photos on that particular service. Um, Well, it's also because everyone would make fun of you for being uh, bald and short and Irish. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I would say, but you bring up another good point with Facebook there. So like, look, what, what is more important? What matters more? The attention and esteem of your close friends and family or the attention and esteem of anonymous strangers. That is the killer app when it comes to Twitter. You can hit big on Twitter and get tens of thousands of people seeing what you had to say and tapping that little heart button. And buddy, there ain't nothing like it. Uh, what do I what do I get when I post to Facebook? Oh, people that I'm close to and have real relationships with, kind of joking with me in the comments and having a good time. Whatever. I want to go mega viral. I want to get the weirdest bullshit in my in the comments under the original post I made with people getting mad about something I never even said. That's the real internet experience. And and buddy, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Well, to to make a comparison, I would say that Facebook is like a key party and that you generally know what fluids you're going to be sharing. Uh, so it may be less exciting. Whereas Twitter is a glory hole. Uh, sure, there's unlimited possibilities, but there's also the chance that your <laughs> dick might be uh, might be uh, put a mousetrap upon. <laughs> so I would say to you, would you prefer to go to a key party or would you prefer to go to Stephen Crowder's favorite glory hole at a rest stop? And there, we, and there we have the crux of the matter, folks. Are you a staid, button-down type who would only deign attend a key party to get their random sex? Or do you feel like throwing, uh, you know, throwing fortune to the wind and, uh, and truly engaging with the, the universe's chaos and randomness and sticking your dick into any old hole that you see? 
ultimately, it sounds like it's a personal preference. I have my final point, which is, uh, you know, for all of the all of the uh, stupid stupid things that uh, Elon Musk has added to Twitter, he has not at all reached the point at which Mark Zuckerkorn has with uh, the creation of legs in <laughs> Meta. That's true. Where are the it's... legs, Elon? Where are the legs? Everyone's asking. Don't... I still don't have my legs on uh, Twitter. I'm, I'm paying the $8 a month. Uh, nobody is liking my posts. I still don't have the legs. I thought when I paid the $8, it would mean people would like me more. And so I'm very confused as to why that has not, uh, that that has not panned out. Um, but I think that's a strong final point with the legs. Uh, heaven knows that uh, I'm sure Elon is working around the clock, uh, ignoring every single one of his seven or eight children to uh to get that going and and we salute you sir and we believe in your vision of buying something that already exists and making it worse uh the elon musk promise but uh anyway with, with all that i think this is this is another one where we'll leave it to the audience to decide are you are you a are you a a cowardly uh a repressed key party goer or are you a liberated and free glory hole type uh the choice is yours listeners but with we'll leave you with that to consider to reflect on your own life and where you would like to to stick your not just not just your dick but also you know your the metaphorical dick right we're not talking about the actual organ you know this this goes out to everybody you know regardless of whatever equipment you have uh but with with that we'll uh bid bid i mean to be fair glory holes only really work with dicks so i don't know what to tell you i I'm not going to get into the mechanics of them, but there's, you know, there, there's something on the other side. Uh, I think it could work. I'm not going to get into it. Um, <laughs> but moving away from all this, we will return uh, next week to continue recapping Dark Force Rising uh, as we cover. Do we chapters. have to? We do have to. We're going to cover chapters 13, 14, and 15. I've read ahead a little bit, and Ronnie, there's some stuff you're going to like. In addition to everything that has been frustrating about it uh, so far. So, uh, but uh, join us next time as we continue our uh, noble quest to complete the Thrawn trilogy by contractual obligation we made unto each other. But in any case... Dark Force Rising, the second book, because there was a first book, and there's going to be a third book, and you gotta fill those pages somehow... It's among the secondest of books I have ever read. <laughs> but in any case, uh, a good evening, all. Good evening, Ronnie. And we'll see you later. Good night. <laughs>